Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa There's an old Sufi expression that dates back at least to the 14th century that Sufism used to be a state of being without a name. Now it's a philosophy without a state of being. The point being that there's a difference between philosophy and being. There's a difference between <coughs> actually encountering what it is you're talking about as opposed to touching it with your intellect and trying to describe it intellectually. When we speak of Muslims, we speak of believers, and then we also speak of Mumians, the ones who've internalized the teachings, and it actually comes into their being. Uh, animals can be trained. Animals can be made to conform uh, to certain types of actions. But that doesn't mean that they have integrated those actions, the meaning behind those actions, into their being. Uh, we all know the term nafs, uh, the lower self, uh, the part of us that's constantly pushing us to act out in an animal way. Uh, the part of us uh, that's susceptible to the whispers of the whisperer who uh, is constantly enticing us with the baubles and the glitters of the world to run after them and to chase them and to uh, acquire them and to hoard them and to do whatever is necessary to get them for us as if they somehow will for us do some special thing. Uh, the prophet was once asked about his nafs, and he was asked, uh, doesn't he have any? And his response was, I have them also, but mine have become Muslims. Now, I've heard that, and you may have heard that, but recently it came to me that he didn't say they were Mumins. He said his nafs had become Muslims, which means they're trained animals. So they don't disrupt him anymore. They don't become involved wherein they cause a problem. Yet, they have not come that other step of integrating these qualities and changing their nature. Because the nafs isn't going to change its nature. The nafs is the nafs. The lower soul is the lower soul. We have to recognize that. We have to recognize that in ourselves, and we have to recognize that as we go through our life, that's going to be with us. The question is, what can we do about it? The other question is, how do we integrate into our being the things that we hear, the things that we talk about, 
uh, and the states that the Sufi uh, cherishes or yearns for? Uh, how do we integrate love into our being? How do we integrate mercy into our being? How do we integrate compassion into our being? How do we actually, as opposed to talking about these things, become these things? In the names of Allah, when we say Bismillah irrahman irrahim, we say in the name of Allah, the merciful and the compassionate. We don't say in the name of Allah whose name is mercy and whose name is compassion. We say in the name of Allah who is mercy and who is compassion. So the question we have to ask is, can we be mercy? Can we be compassion? Can we be sabur? Can we be Shakur? Can we be patience? Can we be gratitude? In, in Islam, uh, in the Arabic language, many people uh, are given names that represent uh, these qualities. Uh, Abdul Shakur, the slave of gratitude. So it indicates two things. It indicates, one, that you've been named after one of the qualities that belongs to Allah, uh, and the other thing it indicates is that you've been given this name with an intention that you become that which you've been named after, that somehow you become a slave to gratitude, which means that you become gratitude because you've surrendered to gratitude. You've made gratitude larger than your egocentric self, and you've entered into a state that is gratitude. Now, patience is an incredibly important part of this process, because we can't force things. The will that exists, that rules all, is not our will, but His will. His will is what we try to align with. His will is what we try to become attached to and integrated with. You can't do that if you maintain an independent will. You can't do that if you, if you maintain an independent desire, if you maintain an independent push at a certain thing. So, if you don't have patience, the nafs inside of you will begin to say, become more grateful you can do this and they'll establish in you a false state of gratitude that is enlivened made to feel real through your knots but if you have the true state of surrender you will allow gratitude 
to overwhelm you as opposed to you overwhelming gratitude through your own desire for gratitude. In other words, gratitude will enter you once you set the intention for gratitude. And it will happen to you in Allah's time, not in your time. So, we need to understand the difference between forcing a situation and allowing a situation to ripen and to become. Because if we force a situation, it won't have the smell and the taste of the truth because it won't be the truth. If you have a pear and you want to eat it today and it's not ripe and you look at it and you say, I intend that you be ripe and then you hit it a few times for it to become ripe and then you bite it, it still won't be ripe. It'll still be hard and it'll have the taste of a hard pear that's unripe. So even though <clears throat> we may call our attitude grateful, it's going to be whatever it really is. We can't name what we are, and the fact that we do name it has no consequence in reality. Things either are or they are not. Our imagination doesn't make them so. A state occurs because of Allah's wish for a state to occur and our patience in waiting and allowing that state to occur. Talk about these states, reading about these states, um, uh, spending time with people in these states, um, imagining these states, is in a way like plowing the field. We have to do some sort of effort. Effort is required of us. The Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, in a hadith said, Allah loves effort. So it's our obligation to put forth effort. But nobody said Allah loves expectations. And that's another problem that we as humans face. We constantly, through our mind and its desires, place ourselves into the future and into a situation that arises in the future and then we contemplate that future situation as if it's in the present. So we may think of ourselves as grateful in the future and then believe that we're grateful now. And this is a sort of fictitious thinking, a sort of imagination that actually limits us from touching reality. Because if we involve ourselves in imagination, We've removed ourselves from patience. And patience is the quality that allows us to finally walk through the door that is the entryway to reality. Without that patience, we can't walk through the door. And that patience has to be linked.
to gratitude. So we can't be grateful for what we're going to get in the future. We have to be grateful for what we have now. We have to be grateful for what we understand now. We have to be grateful for what exists in this moment. A Sufi is called the son of the moment because he's not attached to the past and he's not involved in the future. He lives in this moment. Your mind doesn't live in this moment. Your mind is either in the future or in the past. And the future and the past have the same reality to your mind as the moment. So, if we are involved in the future and in the past, then our state is essentially a state that involves the mind. And saying that, it becomes apparent that it's not a state that involves the heart. And unless we're involved in a state that involves the heart, we're not in reality. We're in illusion because the mind is the ocean of illusion. So some really simple hints, some simple understandings for us to grasp about our state is, if it's a mind state, it's not a real state. It's when the mind is bypassed that real states begin to occur. And when we're in touch with that and can actually feel that we've somehow left the whims of our desirous nature to where we're no longer attracted or hypnotized or magnetized to the things of the world, to where we've gotten to the point where we're not pulled every time something happens. When we feel that peace, when we feel that being at rest without being overwhelmed by the artifacts that surround us and the circumstances that surround us, when we feel the quietude inside of all of that, and we're not mulling it over in our mind with anxiety and with fears and with elation or depression, because they're both opposite signs of the same coin, we begin to understand that we've entered a place that's closer to reality. The storms of the world that we can actually see occur inside of us. Volcanoes erupt. They're elemental forces. We have those kinds of eruptions inside of us. Tornadoes spin out of control and destroy everything they touch. We have those same eruptions inside of us. Now, we can detect when they occur and we can either follow through with them or avoid them. And it's very difficult when this occurs to one, maintain consciousness while that's going on 
so that you understand the state you're in. And two, act contrary to that state so that the destruction that that state will cause is somehow avoided. We need to be able to recognize our states. If we can't recognize our states, how are we going to get to know ourselves? If we can't recognize the difference in our states, how are we going to get to know ourselves? If we can't recognize the difference between being peaceful and being manic, how are we going to get to know ourselves? We need to understand who we are. And that means there has to be a very close examination of ourselves by ourselves. Recently, uh, for the last few months, the stock market has been extremely volatile. It's been going up and down, and as opposed to a, a straight line with uh, the same kinds of things happening every day, there have been tremendous uh, reactions both up and down every day. Well, we also go through volatile states where we have tremendous reactions every day. Uh, if we buy and sell what's going on with us every day, we're going to end up with some tangible harm to our own being. It would be like trying to catch falling knives. It's a very difficult and dangerous thing. So when we see ourselves in a real volatile state, we need to understand that it's a time in our existence when we need to be not involved. Not involved with what? Not involved as much as we can possibly be with the outside world. Not involved as much as we can possibly be with judging ourselves about what's going on in ourselves at that moment. And not involved in what's going on. This is the real test of our ability not to react to out, outside stimulus. This is the real test of our ability to find a center in ourselves while the elements are out of control. In a hurricane, there's an eye in the middle of the hurricane that's very still. Everything is whirling around it, but if you're in the middle of that, you can find a place of stillness. As the hurricane of our lives every once in a while takes hold of us, as the hurricane of our circumstances takes hold of us, we need to find that centered space. In that centered space is protection for us, is a sanctuary for us, is a, an ability to avoid the consequences of the turmoil that's awaiting us. Now, <clears throat> this is how you escape your karma. You may have a karma that's going to twirl you in all kinds of directions. The question is, do you follow it? Do you engage with it? Or do you try to find the center in order to avoid it? This is what the Sheikh can do for you. He can protect you while your karma swirls around you. He can protect you while those forces are trying to induce certain actions. 
he can sort of shelter you and put you in a bubble that is safe from that place. We need to learn about that bubble of safety. We need to find that bubble of safety and allow us to be transported within that bubble of safety to actual states of reality. But to do that, first we need to cut our connections to the world. And as long as what other people think of us is very important, as long as our status in the world is very important, as long as our titles and our wealth are very important, as long as we hold on to things with a very tight grasp, as long as we see differences among people, as long as we see differences among religions, as long as we see differences among races, as long as we see differences and are involved in the world of judging those differences, we can't escape from the nafs and from the push and the pull of the world because that's what they are involved in. And if we're involved in that, then our state is a worldly state. And if we wish to transcend the worldly state to a state of the pious, to a state of the saintly, to a state of the, of, of the friends of Allah, our state has to change. Our involvement with things has to change. The nature of our involvement with things has to change. This world can't be that influential on us. Its influence has to decrease and decrease. And Allah's influence has to increase and increase. Allah's point of view has to become more important to us. And the world's point of view has to become less important to us. We need to live that way. And we need to prioritize in that way. And until we can actually do that prioritization, then again, we're going to be caught by the whims and fancies of our desires. And unless we are able to see ourselves spin out of control, attached to a whim, we're never going to be able to see the truth. We have to be honest enough to see when a whim catches us and begins to twirl. It plays with us the way a cat plays with a mouse. It takes us from thing to thing to thing to thing. It doesn't kill us. It just plays with us and continues to play with us. Now, the difference between us and the mouse is the mouse is trying to run away. We deny that we're being played with and we interpret the scene as if we're actually playing with the whim. In other words, it's our control. We're not being controlled by it. We're very stupid mice. The mice have the intelligence, animals have the intelligence to run away 
We, on the other hand, embrace our captor and praise it and write novels about it. It's, it's, it's hard to understand how we've become so degraded in knowledge, so degraded in understanding. But it's happened. And it didn't happen in a day. It happened over centuries. But Allah in his mercy has constantly been sending messengers to the world to remind people of their state and their possible state. And we have to take these messages as if they are meant for us. We have to start beginning to understand that we have an obligation to save humanity in this world. And that obligation has been given to each one of us. And who's the first one we have to save? Ourselves. Because if we can't save ourselves, we can't touch anybody else in an appropriate way. As long as we're blind, how can we lead? If we're led by a whim, where are we going to be leading others? Whimsically. Into goofy places. Because that's what we're aware of and that's what we know. We have to change our way. And it begins by disengaging. Now, disengaging is a really difficult thing. Why? Imagine a freight train with a hundred cars on it. And the freight train wants to stop. Now, imagine how many miles it's going to take for that freight train to stop. And if you look at the wheels, when, they're, when the brakes are put on, sparks are flying in every direction. And if the train tries to stop too quickly, there's going to be damage to the cars. If the, if, 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 if the train tries to stop without enough time to try and stop, it's going to run through wherever it was supposed to stop, and damage is going to occur. In order for the stop to occur, there has to be a consciousness that we're moving in another direction.